Thank you for joining me and for listening and reading along. I hope that you are all staying safe and healthy during this time. We are going to be diving into chapter 40 of A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. Chapter 40 Two days, Francie came home for lunch and did not return to school in the afternoon. Mama was in bed. After Neely was told to go back to school, Francie wanted to get Sissy or Evie, but Mama said it wasn't time yet. Francie felt important being in sole charge. She cleaned the flat and looked over the food in the house and planned their supper. Every 10 minutes, she plumped up her mother's pillow and asked whether she wanted a drink of water. Soon after three, Neely rushed in out of breath, flung his books in a corner, and asked whether it was time to run for anybody yet. Katie smiled at his eagerness and said it was no use taking Evie or Sissy away from their own affairs until it was necessary. Neely went off to work with instructions to ask McGarity if he could do Francie's work as well as his own, since Francie had to stay home with their mother. McGarity not only agreed, but helped the boy with the free lunch so that Neely was all finished at 4.30. They had supper early. The sooner Neely started with his papers, the quicker he'd be finished. Mama said she didn't want anything except a cup of hot tea. Mama didn't want the tea after Francie brewed it. Francie worried because she wouldn't eat anything. After Neely left on his paper route, Francie brought in a bowl of stew and tried to make her mother eat it. Katie lashed out at her, told her to leave her alone, that when she wanted something to eat, she'd ask for it. Francie poured it back into the pot, trying to hold back the hurt tears. She had only meant to help. Mama called her again and didn't seem mad anymore. What time is it? asked Katie. Five to six. Are you sure the clock isn't slow? No, Mama. Maybe it's fast then. She seemed so worried that Francie looked out the front window at jeweler Warnov's large street clock. Our clock's right reported Francie. Is it dark out yet? Katie had no way of knowing because even at bright noon, only a dull gray light filtered through the air shaft window. No, it's still light outdoors. It's dark in here, said Katie fretfully. I'll light the night candle. Bracketed to the wall was a small shelf holding a plaster statue of the blue-robed Virgin Mary with her hands held out supplicatingly. At the foot of the image was a thick red glass filled with yellow wax and a wick. Next to it was a vase holding paper red roses. Francie put a lighted match to the wick. The candlelight glowed dully and ruby red through the thick glass. What time is it? Katie asked after a little while. Ten after six. You're sure the clock is neither slow nor fast? 
just exactly right. Katie seemed satisfied, but five minutes later, she again demanded the time. It was as if she had an important rendezvous to keep and was fearful of being late. At half past six, Francie told her the time again and added that Neely would be home in an hour. The minute he comes in, send him for Aunt Evie. Tell him not to take the time to walk. Find a nickel car fare for him and tell him, Evie, because she lives closer than Sissy. Mama, suppose the baby comes all of a sudden and I don't know what to do. I couldn't be that lucky to have a baby all of a sudden. What time is it? 25 to 7. Sure? I'm sure. Mama, even if Neely is a boy, it would have been better if he stayed with you instead of me. Why? Because he's always such a great comfort to you. She said it without malice or jealousy. It was a simple statement of fact. Well, I... I just don't know the right things to say to make you feel better. What time is it? A minute after 25 to 7. Katie was silent for a long time. When she spoke, she said the words quietly as if speaking to herself. No, men shouldn't be around at that time. Yet, women make them stand next to them. They want them to hear every moan and groan and see every drop of blood and hear every tear of the flesh. What is this twisted pleasure they take out of making the men suffer along with them? They seem to be taking revenge because God made them women. What time is it? Without waiting for an answer, she continued. Before they're married, they'd die if a man saw them in curl crimpers or with their corsets off. But when they have a baby, they want him to see them in the ugliest way a woman can be seen. I don't know why. I don't know why. A man thinks of the pain and agony that came to her out of their being together and then it isn't good anymore to him. That's why many men start being unfaithful after the baby. Katie hardly realized what she was saying. She was missing Johnny so terribly and thinking so to rationalize his not being there. Besides, there is this. If you love someone, you'd rather suffer the pain alone to spare them. So keep your man out of the house when your time comes. Yes, Mama. It's five after seven. See if Neely's coming. Francie looked and had to report that Neely wasn't in sight yet. Katie's mind went back to what Francie had said about Neely being a comfort. No, Francie. It's you who's the comfort to me now. She sighed. If it's a boy, we'll call him Johnny. It will be nice, Mama, when there are four of us again. Yes, it will. After that, Katie didn't say anything for a while. When next she asked the time, Francie told her it was a quarter past seven and that Neely would be home soon. 
Katie instructed her to wrap Neely's nightshirt, toothbrush, a clean towel, and a bit of soap on a newspaper as Neely was to remain at Evie's house for the night. Francie made two more trips to the street with the bundle under her arm before she saw Neely coming. He was running down the street. She ran to meet him, gave him the bundle, car fare and instructions, and told him to hurry. How's Mama? he asked. Good. You sure? Sure. I saw a trolley coming. You better run. Neely ran. When Francie got back, she saw that her mother's face was bathed in sweat and that there was blood on her lower lip as though she had bitten through it. Oh, Mama! Mama! She shook her mother's hand and held it to her own cheek. Ring a cloth of cold water and wipe my face, Mama whispered. After Francie had done so, Katie went back to what she was went back to what was incompleted in her mind. Of course, you were a comfort to me. Her mind veered off to something that seemed irrelevant but wasn't. I've always been meaning to read your A compositions, but I never had the time. I've a little time now. Would you like to read one to me? I can't. I burned them all up. You thought about them, and wrote them, and handed them in, and got marks on them, and thought about them some more, and then you burned them up. And all through that, I never read one of them. That's all right, Mama. They weren't much good. It's on my conscience. They weren't much good, Mama. And I know you never had the time, Katie thought. But I always had time for anything the boy did. I made time for him. She continued her thought aloud. But then, Neely needs more encouragement. You can go on with what you have inside you, like I can. But he needs so much from outside. That's all right, Mama, Francie repeated. I couldn't do any different than I did said Katie, but it will always be on my conscience just the same. What time is it? Nearly 7.30. The towel again, Francie. Katie's mind seemed to be trying to clutch at something. And isn't there one left you can read? Francie thought of the four about her father, what Miss Gardner had said about them, and answered, no. Then read something from the Shakespeare book. Francie got the book. Read about, "'Twas on a night like this. I'd like to have something pretty in my mind just before the baby comes." The print was so small that Francie had to light the gas to read. As the light flared up, she had a good look at her mother's face. It was gray and contorted. Mama didn't look like Mama. She looked like Grandma Mary Romilly in pain. Katie winced away from the light and Francie shut it off quickly. Mama, we've read these plays so many times over that I almost know them by heart. I don't need a light or the book. Mama, listen, 
she recited, the moon shines bright in such a night as this, when the sweet wind did gently kiss the trees. And they did make no noise in such a night. Trollis, what time is it? 7.40. Methinks mounted the Trojan walls and sighed his soul toward the Grecian tents where Cressida lay the night. And did you ever find out who Trollis was, Francie? And Cressida? Yes, Mama. Someday you must tell me when I have time to listen. I will, Mama. Katie moaned. Francie wiped the sweat away again. Katie held out her two hands as she had done that day in the hall. Francie took the hands and braced her feet. Katie pulled and Francie thought her arms would come out of their sockets. Then Mama relaxed and let go. So the next hour passed. Francie recited passages she knew by heart. Portia's speech, Mark Antony's funeral oration, tomorrow and tomorrow, the obvious things that are remembered from Shakespeare. Sometimes Katie asked a question. Sometimes she put her hands over her face and moaned. Without knowing she did so and taking no note of the answer, she kept asking the time. Francie wiped off her face at intervals, and three or four times in that hour, Katie held out her two hands to Francie. When Evie arrived at half past eight, Francie all but died of pure relief. Aunt Sissy will be along in half an hour, announced Evie as she rushed into the bedroom. After a look at Katie, Evie pulled the sheet from Francie's cot, knotted one end to Katie's bedpost, and put the other end in Katie's hand. Try pulling on that for a change, she suggested. What time is it? whispered Katie, after she had taken a tremendous tug on the sheet, a tug that made the sweat stand out on her face again. What do you care? answered Evie cheerfully. You're not going any place. Katie started a smile, but the pain spasm wiped it off her face. We can do with a better light, decided Evie. But the gaslight hurts her eyes, objected Francie. Evie took the glass globe from the parlor fixture, coated the outside with soap, and attached it to the bedroom fixture. When she lit the gas, there was a soft, diffused light without glare. Although it was a warm May night, Evie built a fire in the range. She snapped out orders to Francie. Francie rushed around, filling the kettle with water and placing it over the flames. She scoured the enameled wash basin and poured a bottle of sweet oil in it and set it on the back of the stove. The soiled clothes were dumped out of the wash basket and it was lined with a ragged but clean blanket and set up on two chairs near the stove. Evie put all the dinner plates in the oven to heat and instructed Francie to put hot plates into the basket, remove them when they cooled, and substitute other hot plates. Has your mother any baby clothes? she asked. 
What kind of people do you think we are? asked Francie scornfully, as she displayed a modest layette consisting of four handmade flannel kimonos, four bands, a dozen hand-hemmed diapers, and four threadbare shirts which she and Neely had worn in turn as babies. And I made everything myself, excepting the shirts, admitted Francie proudly. Hmm, I see your mother's looking for a boy, commented Evie, examining the blue feather stitching on the kimonos. Well, we shall see. When Sissy arrived, the two sisters went into the bedroom, ordering Francie to wait outside. Francie listened to them talking. It's time to get the midwife, Sissy said. Does Francie know where she lives? I don't make arrangements, Katie said. There just isn't five dollars in the house for a midwife. Well, maybe Sissy and I can raise the money, began Evie. If, look, Sissy said, I bore ten, no, eleven children. You had three and Katie had two. Among us, we had sixteen children. We ought to know enough to bring a baby. All right, we'll bring the baby, decided Evie. Then they closed the bedroom door. Now Francie couldn't hear the sound of their voices. Now Francie could hear the sound of their voices, but couldn't hear what they said. She resented her aunts, shutting her out like that, especially when she had been in complete charge until they came. She took the cool plates from the basket, put them into the oven, and took out two heated plates. She felt all alone in the world. She wished that Neely was home so they could talk about olden times. Francie opened her eyes with a start. She couldn't have been drowsing, she thought. She just couldn't have. She felt the plates in the basket. They were cold. Quickly, she substituted hot plates. The basket had to be kept warm for the baby. She listened to the sounds from the bedroom. They had changed since she nodded. There was no more leisurely moving to and fro, no more quiet talking. Her aunts seemed to be running back and forth with quick short steps, and their voices came in short sentences. She looked at the clock, 9.30. Evie came out of the bedroom, shutting the door behind her. Here's 50 cents, Francie. Go out and get a quarter pound of sweet butter, a box of soda crackers, and two navel oranges. Tell the man you want navel. Say they're for a sick lady. But all the stores are closed. Go down to Dewtown. They're always open. I'll go in the morning. Do as you're told, said Evie sharply. Francie went unwillingly. Going down the last flight of stairs, she heard a hoarse, guttural scream. She stopped, undecided whether to run back or to continue. She remembered Evie's sharp command and continued down the stairs. As she reached the door, there was another and more agonized scream. She was glad she took it out onto the street. In one of the flats, the ape-like teamster ordering his unwilling wife to prepare for bed heard Katie's first scream and ejaculated, Jesus! When the second scream came, he said, 
I hope to Christ she won't keep me awake all night. His childlike bride wept as she unfastened her dress. Flossie Gaddis and her mother were sitting in their kitchen. Floss was sewing on another costume, one of white satin intended for her delayed marriage to Frank. Miss Gaddis was knitting on a gray sock for Henny. Henny was dead, of course, but all of his life the mother had knit socks for him and she couldn't let go of the habit. Miss Gaddis dropped a stitch when the first scream came. Floss said, the men have all the fun and women the pain. The mother said nothing. She trembled when next Katie cried out. It seems funny, said Floss, to be making a costume with two sleeves. Yes. They worked a while in silence before Floss spoke again. I wonder are they worth it? The children, I mean. Miss Gaddis thought of her dead son and her daughter's withered arm. She said nothing. She bent her head over her knitting. She had come around to the place where she dropped a stitch. She concentrated on picking it up. The spare Tinmore spinsters lay in their hard virginal bed. They groped for each other's hands. Did you hear it, sister? asked Miss Maggie. Her time has come, answered Miss Lizzie. That's why I didn't marry Harvey. Long ago when he asked me, I was afraid of that. So afraid. I don't know, Miss Lizzie said. Sometimes I think it's better to suffer bitter unhappiness and to fight and to scream out and even to suffer that terrible pain than just to be safe. She waited until the next scream died away. At least she knows she's living. Miss Maggie had no answer. The flat across the hall from the Nolans was vacant. The remaining flat in the house was occupied by a Polish dock walloper, his wife, and their four kids. He was filling a glass from a can of beer on the table when he heard Katie. Women, he grunted contemptuously. Shut up, you, snarled his wife. And all the women in the house tensed each time Katie cried out and they suffered with her. It was the only thing the women held in common, the sure knowledge of the pain of giving birth. Francie had to walk a long way up Manhattan Avenue before she found a Jewish dairy open. She had to go to another store for the crackers and then find a fruit stand that had navel oranges. As she came back, she glanced at the large clock in Neep's drugstore and noted that it was nearly half past ten. She didn't care what time it was except that it seemed so important to her mother. When she walked into the kitchen, she felt a difference. There was a new quiet feeling and an indefinable smell, new and faintly fragrant. Sissy was standing with her back to the basket. What do you think? She said. You have a baby sister. Mama, your mother's fine.
So that's why I was sent to the store. We thought you knew too much already for 14, said Evie, coming out of the bedroom. I just want to know the one thing, said Francie fiercely. Did Mama send me out? Yes, Francie, she did, said Sissy gently. She said something about sparing those you love. All right, then, said Francie, mollified. Don't you want to see the baby? Sissy stepped aside. Francie lifted the blanket from the baby's head. The baby was a beautiful little thing with white skin and downy black curls, which grew down into a point on her forehead, like Mama's. The baby's eyes opened briefly. Francie noticed that they were a milky blue. Sissy explained that all new babies had blue eyes and that probably they'd be dark as coffee beans as she grew older. It looks like Mama, Francie decided. That's what we thought, said Sissy. Is it all right? Perfect, Evie told her. Not crooked or anything? Certainly not. Where do you get such ideas? Francie didn't tell Evie how she was afraid the baby would be born crooked because Mama had worked on her hands and knees up to the last minute. May I go in and see Mama? She asked humbly, feeling like a stranger in her own home. You can bring the plate into her. Francie took the plate, holding two buttered crackers, into her mother. Hello, Mama. Hello, Francie. Mama looked like Mama again, only very tired. She couldn't raise her head, so Francie held the crackers while she ate them. After they were gone, Francie stood holding the empty plate. Mama said nothing. It seemed to Francie that she and Mama were strangers again. The closeness of the last few days was gone. And you had a boy's name picked out, Mama. Yes, but I don't mind a girl, really. She's pretty. She'll have black curling hair, and Neely has blonde curling hair. Poor Francie got the straight brown hair. I like straight brown hair, Francie said defiantly. She was dying to know the baby's name, but Mama seemed like such a stranger now that she didn't like to ask outright. Shall I write the information out to send to the Board of Health? No, the priest will send it in when she's christened. Oh, Katie recognized the disappointment in Francie's tone. But bring in the ink and the book and I'll let you write down her name. Francie took the Gideon Bible that Sissy had swiped nearly 15 years ago from the mantelpiece. She looked at the four entries on the flyleaf. The first three were in Johnny's fine, careful hand. January 1st, 1901, married. Catherine Romley and John Nolan. December 15th, 1901, born Francis Nolan. December 23rd, 1902, born Cornelius Nolan. 
The fourth entry was in Katie's firm backhand slant. December 25th, 1915, died John Nolan, age 34. Sissy and Evie followed Francie into the bedroom. They too were curious as to what Katie would name the baby. Sarah? Eva? Ruth? Elizabeth? Write this down, Katie dictated. May 28th, 1916. Born. Francie dipped her pen in the ink bottle. Annie Laurie Nolan. Annie? Such an ordinary name, groaned Sissy. Why, Katie? Why? demanded Evie patiently. A song that Johnny sang once, explained Katie. As Francie wrote the name, she heard the chords, she heard her father singing, and twas there that Annie Laurie. Papa, Papa. A song he said that belonged to a better world, Katie went on. <laughs> he would have liked the child named after one of his songs. Lori is a pretty name, said Francie, and Lori became the baby's name. Ooh, getting a little emotional there. 